This episode of the Flush Podcast is brought to you by Waltons, Aluma Trailers, Onyx Hunt, and by Nutrisource Pet Foods. My guest today is Jim Burris from the Bird Dog Society. We'll learn about Jim's mission to create a new community for bird dog owners, trainers, and hunters to support the journey and overall well-being of our favorite four-legged hunters. The Onyx Hunt app is one of the most valuable hunting tools that I take into the field every day, and now that app is available in our vehicles. Yep, Onyx did it. They launched Apple CarPlay. That means when you plug your phone into your vehicle, you now have the option to open up the Onyx app right on the dash of your hunting rig. No more holding your phone while driving, which is obviously dangerous, and you get all of the same layers on your vehicle dash that you get on your phone. You can see the aerial view of your location while driving down the road, just like you'd see if you're using your own Maps apps, Waze, or Google Maps. Except now you can find out if the properties around you are open to the public. The landowner's name that owns the land. And if you're in North Dakota, you can see if that land is posted without even touching your phone. To use this feature, simply make sure your Onyx app is up to date. And if you're not an iPhone user, don't worry. Onyx is currently working on the same platform for Android phones too. Apple CarPlay, the latest incredible feature from Onyx Hunt. Always know where you stand and now where you drive with Onyx Hunt. Welcome to another episode of the Flush Podcast. I'm Travis Frank. I'm your host, Brandon Morton. As always, produces this program. I couldn't do it without him. I won't do it without you. That's right. You won't do I it won't without do me, it Travis. Without you. <laughs> hey, it's good to be back, man. Yeah. After a week away, we weren't able to put a show out last week because I couldn't speak. You ran out of steam <laughs> finally, completely. I finally, I did what my dog couldn't do. Is I ran myself into the ground. <laughs> <laughs> it was a wild stretch. We had Pheasant Fest, and then I literally went from, I left the convention center I raced home, I packed up some gear, I I drove through some snow, got on a bus and hosted 50 people on an ice fishing trip up to Lake of the Woods. It's a yearly ice fishing trip that we do with Ballard's Resort, um, and it's part of one of the other TV shows I host called Do North Outdoors. And so by the time I got back from that trip, it was like, I basically was going straight for like eight days, and I had lost my voice, you and I. We're texting back and forth. I'm like, I can't. I, I had a, nobody would listen to it. You couldn't. You couldn't talk, but you could still go out and uh, snow blow yours and your your neighbor's driveway. So I did you still that. had some energy. I I just couldn't, couldn't speak, talk. but I could yeah. still do. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you're like, you need to rest, and I and you said, have you have your neighbor <laughs> snowball because <laughs> we had the snowmageddon or the snownami yep. coming, you know, and I'm like. Too late. I've already finished mine <laughs> and five of my neighbors because that's what I do, Brandon. That's how I... Life's too short to sit still. I can't. You don't have that low gear in you. I don't have it in me. I want to just give a big shout out to everybody that came out to the local for our live show, the trivia game show. I've heard some positive feedback, Brandon. I think people enjoyed it. I had fun with it. I had a blast and it yeah. was really cool. I think we had almost 100 people packed into that room. We I don't were know if it fits out. 100, but that was the thing because oh. I heard when we left afterwards there were people outside that couldn't get in which i felt bad about that uh, came out and so well we'll do it again we yeah. have to do it again and um next year pheasant fest is going to be in sioux falls south dakota so i assume we'll do it there yeah and maybe we'll find a space that has a little bit more room 
I don't know if we'll do it between now and then. Maybe it's like a once a year type thing, but I had fun. Hey, we'll see. I mean, it might be a good thing for a summer show or something like that. Maybe we can yeah. pull off an outdoor live show and have one there again. We Who talked knows? about how to have more of the uh, live or the audience coming into the show and being a bigger part of it instead of George and, and Scott and Ron being everything. <laughs> Those but guys blabbering. I know, yeah. But they were great, too. And that's <laughs> yeah. the fun part about it. It's a show that is really there's a little bit of nuggets that are interesting that come into play like statistics and facts and things but you know how to get to the answer was the fun part and i was curious to see how you know would they get it on the first clue would they not get it at all or they realize the strategy of the game so the first two people get it wrong and they'll just ride it out the the last hour of the day you know the golden (laughs) hour scott goes golden hour yeah, good. That was just a clue to get you to the golden <laughs> retriever, Scott. You know, so it's really about how you are going to jump in yep. and at what point. If you haven't listened to that show yet, I hope you do. Play along. Give us feedback if you like it. If if maybe we're the only ones that enjoyed it, then maybe we won't do it again. I don't know. <laughs> but we're trying to do something different there. Also, just a really big shout out to everybody that came out to the Film Fest on Thursday night for Pheasant Fest. All the people that stopped by our booth, um, some some of you came and listened to the seminars that I gave about raising a family in the outdoors. I appreciate the uh, the kids that I was able to meet. You brought them with. That's a lot of fun, and the questions were were really insightful. I thought that people asked, so I'm I'm glad for that. I'm glad for all the conversations that I had. Yes, I lost my voice, but it was worth it, and I'll do it again next year. With that, I think. Um, Brandon, what I want to do, I was on the road quite a bit the last couple of days and I listened to a few different podcasts and I'm like, what can I do to kind of, you know, change things up with ours? We've been doing this for two years, three years, three, yeah, three, three years. years. Three oh, mercy. Yeah. Um, you know, so I want to keep information coming and I thought it'd be cool to just add like a, you know, interesting nuggets into the show that make you say, huh. I didn't know that, you know, um, yeah. and it doesn't have to be a lot, but you know, for example, maybe we call it flush facts. I mean, the alliteration. Oh, would that be fun? Yeah. Don't tell our sales team. They'll be all over this one. <laughs> sponsored, <laughs> sponsored by yeah. on X hunt. <laughs> yeah. but, so here's an example of what it might look like. Uh, if we, if we so choose to go this route, uh, we'd maybe do it off the start of the show or at the end of the show. I don't know, but flush facts segment could look like this. You know, I just did a quick, I was interested to know, in my mind, how many dogs are there in the United States? So I did a search, and I landed on a site known as the American Veterinary Medical Association, AVMA for you out there that know more than I do. And they have it kind of broken down. As of 2018, they have this this thing um, compiled, source, U.S. Pet Ownership and Demographics Sourcebook. That's where it comes from. Percent of households that own a dog, Brandon, take a stab. I would say in America, in America I will go ahead and say like 40, 40%. Wow, look at you. 38.4% right. of American households own a dog. Any guess as to how many dogs they own? Average number of dogs owned per those households. Per household? Yep. Two. 1.6, right. which I, that's not possible. That yeah, up, yeah. It averages out. <laughs> Which gets us to a total number of 76,811,305 dogs in America. Wow. 
That's a lot of dogs. That's a lot of dogs. Is that yeah. like higher in percentage than most other countries? I mean, I, I, that's, um, that's another fact. I'm sure no, I mean, let's, day, but. let's, I, I mean, this is like, as my brain is researching some of this stuff, I find it interesting. Um, it doesn't say compared to other countries, but it will, you know, cats, 25% of households have cats, 2.8% have birds. That's not accounting those. Bird dog trainers with pigeons, I'm assuming. <laughs> um, you know, and then for dogs, veterinary visits per household per year on average, 2.4, which averages out to $410 per year spent on a dog. I think us bird hunters spend quite a bit more than that yeah. because of a lot of the other things that we go through with our dogs. I think this is just, you know, a general companion dog as a whole. Interesting statistics yeah. there. Well, that's it, our flush facts of the day. And and I'll just add on because I asked the dumb question. Uh, Argentina is the country with the highest dog of you know per capita, yeah. so it's like sixty six percent of the households. Really, I wonder why it is different there. I have no idea, but yeah, yeah, it says eighty percent of people have a a pet in their home in Argentina, but sixty six percent prefer dogs. Wow, that's 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 a lot. One hundred percent should prefer dogs, in my opinion. I agree. Pheasant Fest was a massive success. Thank you. I mentioned this already. Thank you to everyone that came and sat by your booth. Thank you for all the support. It's so fun to see everybody, to hear the stories, to meet everybody. It's very humbling. I'll speak for Scott Franzen, who was with me for most of the show. It's humbling because when we put together these shows, it's like right now, it's you and I sitting here talking and we have a guest on the line, yeah. Jim. We'll get to in just a minute. But the TV show side of it, you know, there's a couple of us out in the field and we work really hard and then we don't know if anyone's going to like it. We don't know how it's going to be viewed. Some people have very strong opinions. Um, but when we go to these Pheasant Fest and our main audience is there, we get to hear from people and what they like. And I always ask them, what, would we, what could we do better? What could we do different? What do you enjoy seeing? Things like that. But they just, you know, it's just a positivity. It really helps build us up. And I tell everyone back here, just guys, people are listening. They're watching and they love what you're doing. So keep it up, you know. So anyway. Thank you to everyone that came out there. A record crowd showed up for Pheasant Fest this year. More facts coming at us. 33,154 people flocked to the organization's 40th anniversary celebration, which was obviously hosted in Minnesota at the Minneapolis Convention Center. Next year, Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic returns to Sioux Falls, South Dakota at the Denny Sanford Premier Center on March 1st through the 3rd, 2024. So there we have it. I'll be ready. I will be too. I'm going to practice. I'm going to work on my vocals. Um, and I will say that tea and honey that everyone kept telling me, that does not sit well with your guts if you eat too much of it, Brandon. Right, that felt fair. awful. It was disgusting. <laughs> oh, gosh. That's right. There should be a limit to it. That's, that's <laughs> yeah, that exactly. <laughs> Nobody said that part of it. I just kept just that's hammering the lozenges and stuff. And then my guts were just like, no, enough. <laughs> All right. Too much TMI. <laughs> okay. Jim Burris, thank you for holding and listening to all of that unnecessary conversation. Care to add anything to that? Well, I think I'm going to have to gather myself after all of that. <laughs> <laughs> My eyes are watering from laughing. So. <laughs> well, Jim, uh, thank you for holding through all of that. Uh, you are, um, I, we talked a little bit at the show at Pheasant Fest. You were up here. But now you're yeah. back home, and home is in South Carolina. Is that correct? Uh, North Carolina. That's what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. North Carolina. What 
what is it like down there right now? Because it's snowing outside in Minnesota and I don't like it. Well, I'm, I'm very grateful that I got out of Minneapolis when I did because uh, we left up there and it was freezing with a snowstorm coming down. When I get down here, it's 70 degrees. Uh, we actually had a day in the 80s last week. <laughs> How did you make it? How did you manage to get oh. through that? That sounds awful. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's easy coming back south. It's hard going up north. <laughs> yeah, well, you have rattlesnakes and other big snakes, so take that. That's, that's all I really have. That's all I can ever save and fight back. I don't have anything else. It's yeah. This snow is just you know this last one. They were predicting like uh, twenty five inches, and I thought you know just cancel Minnesota's pheasant season. Literally just shut her down for next year because. But fortunately, we only got like ten to twelve inches, um, and then the fifty mile an hour winds that came with it blew most of the snow into these ginormous drifts. And then hopefully, I'm hoping and praying that there's food available for the birds and the other wild critters to reach that might have blown off of the fields. Um, but I will say, friends of mine that aren't necessarily hunters sent me photos of frozen pheasants this past weekend. And that, to me, is not a good sign. Um, pheasants are tough. They're resilient birds. They, they make it through a lot. Um, Signs are right now that the winter is really, really pay, packing a punch, and we're going to really need a good nesting season to rebound from this nasty winter. Enough of the negativity, Jim, back to you <laughs> and the 80-degree sunshine that you're bringing into this conversation today. Um, what are you doing in North Carolina this time of the year that keeps you in the bird hunting game? Uh, so right now, I mean, our season just ended yesterday. Uh, snipe, quail, and grouse season uh, uh, ended yesterday. I wasn't able to make it out yesterday uh, just because of all the obligations. But right now, um, my dog and I are focused on shed hunting. Uh, so that's something we enjoy doing in the springtime and gets us out in the woods. And we are able to scout for the next season. Yeah, I saw when you came up, you drove up to Pheasant Fest and on your way up, you stopped and found shed antlers how cool is that and i mean do you do that regularly where you just go into random public lands and and go hunt for sheds uh yeah absolutely um you know we we use onyx a lot just to find places we can go and you know part of it is you know, figuring out the regulations for each state uh, uh some states you're not even allowed to legally take the sheds off the land um some states uh well most states have to have a hunting license and stuff like that but uh but yeah we uh we go shed hunting all over the place we uh, stopped in west virginia on the way up and went grouse hunting uh then we stopped in wisconsin um and uh, did some shed hunting gotcha um on that the where you mentioned some states don't allow it some states will allow you to take antlers shed antlers as long as they're not attached to a skull if it's attached to a skull it would be a hunting license would be needed. And I learned that, oh, years ago. And I believe South Dakota is that way. I think North Dakota might be that way as well, where you need to actually possess a tag and you can call the DNR. And a lot of times they'll give you that tag. Might be blue tongue or some other disease that causes them to die. But it is it is something that you need to check into. So that's a very good point, Jim. What are the bird hunting, or how was your bird hunting season down there in the Southeast? Yeah, we had an incredible year down here. Um, the the woodcock seem to be holding in slightly different covers this year than uh, last couple of years because we our woodcock season started uh, really dry. 
Um, and uh, the, the birds just seem to be in much thicker cover this year. But as far as numbers, uh, we had good numbers this whole year. Um, you know, Manu and I, I think we hunted, well, this counts trips out west and stuff like that, but we hunted over 40 days this year. Um, and we put up hundreds of woodcock. Um, and then we, uh, we also did a, a, a trip out west to, to South Dakota to get out on the, the grasslands and then hunt some grouse and stuff out there. Um, and then grouse, grouse numbers, at least where I hunt, were, were down uh, this year. We did find some grouse, but uh, um, we were probably averaging one bird a day. Um, and that's uh, uh, mostly up in West Virginia. Uh, so we hunt West Virginia, Virginia, and North Carolina a lot. Um, quail numbers were actually really good this year. It seems like the quail numbers are bouncing back. Um, find a few more coveys just about every year uh, for the last few years. And so that's really encouraging to see. Are you able to hunt them on public ground? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much all the quail that we found this year were on public grounds. Um, so, and uh, in fact, uh, I found in North Carolina, most of the quail numbers are, are over towards the coast. And this year I found my furthest covey west uh, in North Carolina that I've ever found, uh, which isn't really too far from, from where I live here in central North Carolina. So that was uh, really uh, awesome to find. What do you attribute the the increase in bird numbers too. Yeah, you know, we've had some really mild winters down here um, in uh, drier conditions. Uh, you know, a lot of times we have some um, pretty large tropical systems come through here and stuff like that, and, uh, which can wreak havoc on the entire area. We haven't had any of those for the last few years and really mild winters. So I'm guessing just the, you know, nesting and, and recruitment and stuff is, is higher um, because of the, you know, kind of the, the calm uh, weather patterns that we're, we've been seeing here. I mean, when you say we've had mild winters here, you know, like as I sit in this <laughs> 25 foot tall snowdrifts up here, like, what? I, I mean, if a bird can survive in Minnesota, you know, like it's not that far south of, of us that quail survive. And, you know, like, why is it that you need a milder winter down there for the numbers to to rack up compared to like what we experience every winter up here? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I'm not a, not really a quail biologist, but uh, uh, you know, over over on the the coast where we're at, there's a lot of marshlands and, and and stuff like that with a lot a lot of water. Um, so, you know, if we get a really harsh winter, it could really um, change some of the the habitat over there because a lot of it's under ice, uh, which I guess up there's you know probably the same same deal. Um, but uh, you know, it it could be a matter of these birds that die here just don't really have the winter cover. Um, like you guys have up there is a lot of, um, um, kind of, if we got a, a deep snow or something like that, it would probably break over some, uh, some of the cover that we have down here. You get snow down so there? We do occasionally get snow and usually when we do, everything shuts down. So all the schools close and, and people get to stay home from work. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's just a regular Tuesday for us. All right. Let's, um, Oh, I know what I wanted to ask you. You do quite a bit of snipe hunting, and you know when Bill Shirk filmed a snipe hunt for our show last season. I think you and I um, maybe messaged back and forth a little bit on that because Manu, your dog, is like an expert snipe hunter. Can you explain how you guys hunt? Yeah, so we uh, we started snipe hunting a couple of years ago, um, and really we we target uh, waterfowl impoundments and uh, coastal grasslands. Um, and a lot of these impoundments have grass, uh, blue stem, and stuff like that in them. 
uh, or various um, millet and corn and, and, and cover like that, uh, that when they flood them, uh, the snipe will get in there. There's a massive amount of uh, worms and crustaceans and, and stuff like that in there, and the snipe will just get in there and feed. Um, a lot Depending on weather patterns, sometimes uh, the snipe could be pretty thick throughout most of uh, the eastern half of North Carolina. And then sometimes they seem to, seem to migrate closer to the coast. Uh, but we find them here on the Triangle uh, in central North Carolina all the way over to the coast. Um, in good years, we're putting up anywhere from 50 to 200 birds a day. Uh, and then, you know, slower years, uh, it's, it's probably about 30 to 60 birds in a full day of hunting. Uh, but we're with the cover and, uh, and everything, we're able to hunt these birds with the, or yeah, the birds with the dogs. Um, and I would say that probably out of all those birds, if you have a few good dogs, half of them are going to be, um, pointed and you can shoot them over pointing dogs. Hmm. That's, that's kind of what I was wondering is how well they hold for a pointing dog. What, what does the cover look like? I, I think you described it, but help me understand, you know, are you in water most of the time when you're walking? Uh, half the time in water, half the time in just moist ground. Um, so I would say, and what I tell people a lot of times is if the water is deeper than the, a snipe's leg, then you're pro- it's probably too deep for the snipe. Yep. Um, cause they don't like to get their, their bellies wet, but they are in the water, um, feeding around. Um, down here, we also get rail, uh, Virginia rail, uh, sore rail, clapper rail and King rail. And those are, uh, in the kind of the thicker grass in the deeper water, uh, cause they'll kind of hang on to the side of the grass. Uh, as well and so that's another bird that we uh, uh, will hunt while we're snipe hunting uh, but yeah the grass could be pretty pretty thick in some areas and those birds will definitely hold um, early season in particular uh, once they haven't been chased around by us for a, a little while uh, later season a lot of times uh, uh, the cover is a little bit more sparse and the birds may be a little bit more of a challenge to, to get uh, close to um, now if you have a stiff wind uh, that definitely helps the dog um, it's incredible a sniper half the size of a woodcock and and i've had my dog point sniped at 50 and 60 yards away uh with a stiff wind um and so they are a finicky bird um so if you don't have a dog that respects them uh they'll probably he'll probably pressure them and they'll, and they'll flush but as long as they have good cover and you know have a good breeze and a good pointing dog can absolutely uh, pin them down that's amazing to me because i can't imagine that there's any set trail for that dog to follow so it's literally just smelling the bird because i mean it has to disappear in the water you would think right you know like a pheasant running through the grass leaves a trail and the dog follows it runs you know and then boom they go on point whereas i don't think you have that luxury down there right well i mean i'm not sure how the scent carries but uh, if there's any oils that are being uh, given off the bird that are uh, on the water that might uh, create a bigger scent pool than just the bird itself especially it's been working in that area um so you know you think about this a snipe probe in the ground, kind of like a woodcock. Um, if it's releasing oils and stuff like that, those can carry as well. Because, I mean, when you send a dog out in the swamp searching for a duck or something like that, it can pick up scent off, off the water. So Yeah, I suppose. It's amazing how they do that. When you're hunting for snipe, you mentioned rails um, and a variety of different rail species, too. Are all of them legal to shoot, or do you ever have birds get up where you're like, ah, I can't quite identify that. I can't take the shot. Uh, yeah, there, there's actually a few, um, birds that whenever they get up, they, they, they kind of fly, um, like, um, 
rail, like King rail. Uh, I think they're called Northern Bitterings or something like that. Um, but yeah, when they get up, uh, using my guns off safety and I'm pointing at them then before I realize, oh, that's, that's a little bit bigger than a King rail and have to pull down. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but, uh, but usually the, the rail, um, are pretty easy to identify, especially the smaller ones, the Sora rail and the Virginia rail. They're not fast flyers, so you can get a pretty good look at them. Um, um, dogs can actually, uh, uh, they, they hold really well for dogs. Um, and they're not, they're not really a challenge to shoot. Uh, the sniper are, are a significant challenge to shoot because when they come off the ground, they're at hundred percent speed and, uh, can be, uh, somewhat erratic flyers. Um, so shooting percentage is, uh, it's kind of, uh, uh, it's kind of like shooting, um, doves. <laughs> That's what I was going to ask. It sounds like you're on a dove hunt to me where those birds are up, <laughs> they're down, they're left, they're right. You. You zig, they zag, and uh, but when you do get one, they're darn good to eat. So, what does a snipe taste like, and how do you prepare it? Um, well, um, so I would compare them to woodcock. Um, it's a very dark red meat, um, and usually I just mix my uh, snipe and woodcock together, uh, and I can't tell the difference between one or the other when I'm eating them. Um, but uh, um, my favorite way is just to uh, debone them, uh, fry them in a uh, skillet, you know, flash fry them, you know, maybe 30 to 45 seconds on each side uh, with a little bit of a seasoning. I'm really loving the, uh, the Aloha seasoning from uh, um, uh, Walton's. Right on. Uh, and then uh, just start right down the hatch as hot as you can eat it. That's my preferred way to, to yeah. have it. But, have, you, um, have you ever tried doing that uh, with, with a little olive oil on it? And then put that seasoning on it and throw it on the grill. Uh, so I have, I I haven't tried them on the grill. I've been meaning to try uh, smoking them to see how that would turn out. But uh, uh, but yeah, I'm I'm usually I'm I'm more of a I, I eat to just sustain myself to keep going. So if it takes a lot of time to eat, <laughs> you have to shoot a lot of snipe. I bet. <laughs> yeah. Well, the fry them in a pan. I could be eaten within. 10 minutes for, for a girl. I feel like it takes a little bit longer. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, yeah, but. let's get into the discussion about the bird dog society. That's the main meat that I want to take a bite off of today with our conversation. The reason I wanted you to come on the show, because you just launched the, this organization, it's called the bird dog society. How did this come about? And what is the bird dog society? Yeah, great question. Um, and so the Bird Dog Society, our mission is to create and enhance resources for the physical and mental well-being of bird dogs and facilitate a more rewarding experience for bird dogs, uh, for bird dog owners, excuse me. Um, you know, bottom line, we just want to create safe, meaningful, and engaging opportunities uh, to increase the quality of life for bird dogs and, uh, and make bird dog ownership easier. Um, it could be a challenge to get a bird dog if you've never had one before and uh, it could take some time uh, to understand, you know, the prey drive and the energy level and the intelligence that these dogs have, and and the amount of physical and mental stimulation that is required to keep keep them well mannered and behaved in the home or or, or wherever you take them. Um, and you know, one thing that we wanted to try to address is if you look across the U.S., there's over 300 nonprofit organizations just dedicated to rehoming bird dog breeds. Um, and so that tells me that there's a, there's a problem out there because there's not a single organization that tries to reach these people and dog owners before they feel like they have to give their dog up. Um, Wait, to 300 for organizations for just bird dog breeds or all dog breeds? Just bird dog breeds. Um, and so to further break that down, 
Um, there's 236 nonprofits in the U.S. just for rehoming Labrador Retrievers, Golden Retrievers, and German, German Short Hair Pointers, which are the three most popular bird dog breeds. Wow. Wow. You were listening when we, when we gave the facts about how many dogs are in America, you know, how many millions of them. You find that to be accurate? Uh, yeah, I, well, I was trying to guess whenever you guys were talking about it and I guess a little bit lower than that. Um, because I think it's really hard to get an exact number on that just because of the amount of undocumented breedings and, sure. and dogs that aren't registered. And, um, but if we, so when we were setting up the bird dog society, we wanted to kind of take a look at numbers. Um, and if you take, there's those three breeds that I just mentioned, the Labrador retriever, golden retriever, and German short hair pointer. If you take a look at AKC registrations and calculate that out for an average 12 year life expectancy, that's roughly 2 million dogs just for those two breeds that are registered uh, through AKC in the, in the U S. And so, you know, there's uh, the bird dog society. We currently recognize 51 different breeds of bird dogs. um, And basically that's based off the AKC sporting breed breeds group and the North American versatile hunting dog association uh, recognized breeds. Um, And then the hunting poodle is not on either one of those lists, but we recognize that as a bird dog as well. Do you recognize so. the poinsettia? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, in our uh, organizing documents, we uh, we put in there uh, any purpose bred combination of the two of two of the. Other breeds. <laughs> it so, is. Yeah, it, yes, it is. So <laughs> Daisy, you're finally recognized. She's passed out over here on the floor. <laughs> I've never been able to get her into an organization because nobody will have her and now we finally no i'm just kidding if you're an outdoor lover on the go then odds are good that you have toys and equipment that you want to haul aluma trailers well they've got you covered their trailers are built by a hard-working team in bancroft iowa they have models for nearly any and every hauling need from atv and utv trailers to utility snowmobile motorcycle car trailers and even fully enclosed trailers like mine Trust me when I say that Aluma trailers tow like a dream. Their trailers are constructed out of lightweight, strong, corrosion-resistant aluminum, and they are 100% maintenance-free. Plus, they come with an industry-best five-year warranty. Visit alumaklm.com to find a trailer that fits your needs. I hope you've bagged a few pheasants, grouse, and quail this season. Maybe even a few ducks, geese, and deer, too. Whatever you're hunting for, Waltons can help you finish the hunting process, bringing your wild game full circle. Whether you need to mix, grind, or stuff, Waltons will surely have your new favorite pieces of meat processing equipment. Don't spoil your hard work in the field by letting that meat get freezer burned. Save right now on vacuum sealers and bags. Bag up your birds, your jerky, snack sticks, and summer sausage, and have your meat last all year for long-term storage. Find everything, and I mean everything, you need to process and prepare your meat at Waltons.com. And while you're there, sign up for their free monthly giveaways and check out what John Tremblay and the Waltons team is working on in their meat logistics community. Waltons, they have everything but the meat. I love my dog, and like you, I always want to make sure that she has what she needs to stay healthy year-round and perform at her best in the field. That's why I feed Daisy Nutrisource High-Performance Dog Food. 
Nutrisource dog food comes with their good for life system that includes four key ingredients that work together to support gut health, heart health, and the overall well-being of our dogs. I have complete confidence that my dog has all of the nutrition to excel in the field and make it through a rigorous hunting season. I've seen it firsthand and she loves her food. Take it from me and my dog Daisy. Nutrisource high performance dog food can help your dog reach their full potential. Find the food that's right for your dog at NutrisourcePetFoods.com. So what would be, um, what's the best way to describe how people can get involved with this or what you guys do now that you've established the society? Yeah. And so to kind of go back on your, your earlier question, uh, one reason why this was uh, formed, I, I first conceived the idea uh, while hunting in North Dakota and uh, hunting a lot of public lands and the uh, sheer amount of, we had nine bird dogs hunting with us that week and it was just nonstop getting dogs back and forth across the barbed wire. Um, you know, our dogs received some lacerations, but nothing that really um, stopped us from being able to hunt. But I thought well, a lot of this barbed wire is no longer needed. Some of it's in major disrepair um, and the federal government is cutting uh, money away from budgets for repairing fence on public lands and stuff. And I was like, there needs to be an organization that kind of has the best interest of bird dogs in mind because there's a lot of dogs that use these public lands every day. And you hear stories all the time of dogs being injured by barbed wire. I mean, there's a saying that says there's two kinds of bird dogs, ones that have ha- will have been injured by barbed wire and the ones that will be injured by barbed wire. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, so the idea first came up that, um, in North Dakota to try to uh, address that issue. But then it got further developed as I uh, started to get more and more involved with NAVDA. Um, I previously had English setters and then I switched to a poodle pointer. And if you have a poodle pointer, you kind of NAVDA is a, a natural fit uh, for that breed because you have to have them uh, pass through utility tests if you have a male in order to breed uh, registered poodle pointer puppies. And so I, I'm heavily involved with NAVDA, and, and on a monthly basis, I would see a lot of people, first-time bird dog owners, um, come through, and they would just kind of be lost. Um, they, they'd be there at a training day because their breeder told them they had to test in NAVDA, um, or they just wanted a group to you know train with or a location to train with. Um, and I, I feel like it could, was very intimidating for some of those people. You know, you come to a group, and there's people uh, walking around with shotguns and, um, you know, 30 different dogs and you know, you're there with your little puppy and not a, especially if you're not a hunter uh, or a bird hunter, um, it could be a little bit intimidating. And oftentimes we wouldn't see a lot of those people return. And I'm, and I was always, well, what's happening to these people? Why are they not getting connected? Um, is, you know, there's a lot of organizations people can get connected to, but I feel like um, they are still a little bit um, either they're for hunters or, or not for hunters or they're for this breed and not for this breed. Um, so there really wasn't a inclusive organization for all bird dogs. Um, you know, most of them had some kind of uh, uh, exclusive uh, nature to them. Uh, so we just wanted to create a um, organization where if you had a bird dog that was high energy, intelligent and, and a lot of prey drive and, and you needed to learn how to live with this dog, um, then we wanted to provide resources for you to be able to do that. Um, where were you two so, years ago, Jim? Where were you when I needed yeah. you two years ago? <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, one thing I, I've come to realize uh, establishing this organization, you know, I grew up in West Virginia. 
uh, to where, you know, I had bird dogs and if they needed exercise, I just opened up the door and they had literally hundreds of acres to run. You know, that was exercise. We didn't think a whole lot about, you know, what is the physical and mental needs of these dogs uh, just because they were able to, you know, self-sustain. Um, here in North Carolina, where I'm at, I have a half acre fenced in backyard. Uh, and for my dog, that is not enough physical and mental stimulation to keep him content. Um, so every day we travel to an 800 acre soybean farm just so he can take a long run, chase squirrels, do whatever, um, and just, you know, increase the quality of his life and make sure that he's, um, not, um, using all that energy and, and focus in a destructive manner. So you had this idea, how did you actually make it come to reality? And why did you invest so much of your own time into doing it? Well, you know, bird dogs have been in my life, my whole life. And I feel like they're a big part of my lifestyle. And I'm connected to them to where I feel like I, uh, I owe them as much. I try to give them as much as I feel they've given me. Um, and I... In a way, uh, whenever I got my current poodle pointer, I, I've never shared this story before. Um, I've got a um, 16-month-old son at home, and uh, um, in a way, I kind of contribute m- me having my son to um, my bird dog, and uh, and that's because <clears throat> when I had an English setter, um, she had pass away uh, from old age. And at that time, my wife and I were, were trying for a family. And uh, through some unfortunate uh, events and um, multiple miscarriages, you know, we, we decided not to get a dog because we didn't want to kind of add to all the challenges that we were facing at the, at the moment. I took a little bit of break and from having a bird dog. And then, um, you know, the wife and I decided to essentially took a break from trying to have a family, um, because of the challenges we're uh, facing. And I told the wife, I was like, if we're going to do this, I have to have another dog. Um, I was like, there's no option. I need some, some way to focus my attention and energy. And, um, and so I got a, I got a poodle pointer. I did some research and that's the breed I kind of wanted to switch to. Um, and you know, the whole ordeal with trying for family was very physically and and mentally taxing on the wife. Um, but when we got this dog, you know, that dog came in and was quickly a part of our family. It was almost like having a kid and, and it was our bird dog that kind of renewed our desire and energy, uh, to want to try for a kid for essentially a fourth time. And, um, and you know, things, things worked out and, and, you know, essentially a year and a half after we got our, our dog, uh, we had our uh, first kid, um, uh, our son, Makai, wow. uh, who is, uh, is now 16 months old. So wow, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing um, that story. Yeah. Uh, and so I just kind of feel like, you know, bird dogs are a lifestyle and I owe, you know, so much of, you know, what I appreciate and life to, you know, having dogs, you know, just being out, able to go out and hunt and, um, and be active with them doing shed hunting, hiking, and, and just being a part of the family that I, I really, you know, I really wanted people, other people to be able to experience, um, the positive impact bird dogs have had on my life. Uh, and a lot of times I, I come across people that are struggling. Um, you know, the average age when people give up dogs for adoption is between five months and three years. Well, my dog just passed three years and I couldn't imagine 
uh, what, you know, a dog like that would have to go through, um, to, to be adopted and be put in a kennel, you know, until, or a foster home until he's, uh, uh, finds a new home. So, I mean, that's a very, uh, impressionable time in a dog's life. For sure. Um, yeah. I mean, there's that, that adolescent stage where puppies, they want to test their boundaries and that's, I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head there. It seems like from what I've heard and what I've experienced myself, kind of that seven to 12 month period is a real time where they, they're going to push every button they possibly can and test you and test, you know, will you be able to be standing firm and, and be the leader, the pack leader, the dog needs. Um, and some people are in a position where it hasn't worked out. I do know some people that have had to donate their dogs or give their dogs or find a new home for their dogs because they just weren't in a, weren't in a position to be able to give that dog everything it needed. Um, which, you know, maybe if they knew that you had this resource, like the bird dog society, maybe they would have had people to come alongside and help them, I guess. Can you explain, you know, like now that you're up and running, how it tangibly works with, people across the country yeah so we have uh, various different events that we uh, um, put on uh, to get people active and engaged with their dogs and then we also have educational and out resource um, materials that we put out um, right now one of our most popular things is a webinar series that we have uh, that'll be launched in march 16th um, those are free webinars available to anyone and everyone um, and those cover topics that it would be relevant to any bird dog owner, whether new or experienced. Um, and so that's a, a way that we can provide something for the general public. Uh, and those have been very popular. Um, our first one is on um, bird dog field first aid. Uh, and then we have another one on canine health issues. Um, we have an intro into tracking uh, seminar, uh, one about bringing home a new puppy. Uh, traveling with your bird dogs. Um, then we have a, a talk about being an ethical dog breeder. And then uh, we have a talk uh, later this year uh, on mean seeds, which is something that a lot of people aren't familiar with. And then when they travel, they they see these uh, sores on their dog and they're like, what in, what in the world is this? Um, and some of those can be life-threatening. And so uh, we're trying to put resources out there uh, for people to be educated and empowered uh, so they feel more confident going out with their dogs, whether it's on public land or private land or, or uh, being prepared for uh, health issues. Um, as far as events, um, next, actually it's this month now. <laughs> it's already March, hard to believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but this month we have a, a shed hunt that we'll be doing here in North Carolina, um, which is on public lands. Um, so we're going to be highlighting public lands where people can take their dogs and uh, run them off leash and train them and hunt with them. Uh, but we're going to be planting sheds throughout the public lands. And we also have state conservation officers that are planning to be there to talk about uh, shed hunting and stuff like that and to, to communicate with the participants. Uh, but the sheds are going to have identifiers on them. So it's going to be kind of like a grown-up Easter egg hunt, but with your dog. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if they find a certain shed attached to a, a with a number on it, then uh, they'll get some kind of prize. Um and so that's just a way for us to be able to introduce people to uh, a new activity. You know, shed hunting really doesn't require any type of training. I mean, you can 
literally go out in the woods uh, with your dog and just take a hike with them. Um, and if you find a shed, great. If not, then no pressure. You just keep going out. And uh, a lot of times, uh, particularly you've got a dog that has a strong uh, drive to retrieve and, and they'll figure it out. Um, but it's a way for us to introduce people to new activities. And then in the fall and September, we actually have a uh, introduction to hunting with your bird dog uh, workshop. It's a hands-on workshop where we teach people how to go out and quail hunt, woodcock hunt, and waterfowl hunt with their dogs. Um, you know, bird dogs are one of the biggest components of getting people, um, hunters engaged and, and reactivated. Um, and so um, the challenge is, is a lot of people are, are nervous about taking their dog out because they're afraid they're going to lose their dog. Uh, they're afraid of snakes, ticks, bob wire. They don't know where to take their dog. They don't know what kind of habitat to look for. They've never been upland hunting before. So there's a lot of kind of hurdles that a lot of people that have been hunting their whole life, kind of like me, take for granted. Um, and we're just uh, trying to uh, provide a workshop so that people will be confident to be able to take their dogs on public lands and hunt birds this fall um, in our area and have a reasonable chance for success. Do you feel like you're really aiming more for the non-hunters that somehow ended up getting a bird dog or are you trying to just come alongside hunters that are learning as they go or is it both it's a little bit of both i mean we we want to cater to the hunter and the non-hunter um so we want to have events and partner with um activities that are not hunting related uh, like dock diving uh, lure coursing uh, agility tests and, and stuff like that um, there's a big push for adventure dogs right now. Um, and so we just, our biggest thing is we, we're focused on the dogs. We want the dogs to be active, engaged, um, you know, whether that's hunting or some other activity, as long as they're getting that mental and physical stimulation um, and, you know, help bird dog owners build that kind of unbreakable bond that we all hear about uh, between a, a bird dog and their owner. Because uh, these dogs are a lifestyle. Um, you can't just get a dog and, and throw them in a kennel all all day and come home from work and play with them for 15 minutes and and then that be it um you know so these we're, we're, we're trying to create or introduce people to how to incorporate a, a bird dog into a lifestyle so that you and the dog are, are happy what is kind of the number one mistake that you are seeing people make with their dogs um Really, I think a lot of it comes down to just the energy level that bird dogs have. Um, and in and, and this, we're ma mainly talking about people that have um, are getting their first bird dog. Uh, these dogs need a lot of stimulation. Um, you know, I know uh, one of our board members has a Vishla and she got the dog to be a running partner and she would run three miles with her Vishla and the dog would get home and be like, all right, now what do we do? And, you know, she's exhausted, uh, but these dogs have... Uh, seemingly endless energy sometimes and um and even even i have i've seen that you know, kind of mentioned it you know now i have a half acre backyard that is just not enough to uh, stimulate uh my poodle pointer um physically and mentally um but i i've also heard of people getting going from breeds that are kind of lower energy breeds uh, like some of the labs and and stuff like that and going to a higher energy breed like a gsp uh, and that could be kind of eye-opening as well um, and a challenge for them to to cope with this uh, elevated energy level mm -hmm. so. yeah mine specifically daisy i mean her energy level is through the roof her prey drive is through the roof if i took her out for a run i'd be slowing her down by like 500 percent. you know like <laughs> she she just wants to go she has, you know, her space in our yard and our neighbor is the same way. He wants her to 
be able to run through his property and come over and and so she has a little bit larger but it's it's not a huge space We're, we live in a neighborhood the one thing that i've learned you know she has this like track that she's created and you can see it in the snow right now which is funny and then in the summer you can kind of see where the grass gets matted down a little bit but she puts on miles in our backyards every day miles that's how much she's running and i've noticed because we have bird feeders set up we have squirrels we have rabbits um there's actually a fox currently that we're trying to figure out how we're going to navigate around because this fox seems to be denning up underneath our neighbor's shed in the back daisy <laughs> spends about 90 percent of her outside time circling the shed right now which is not good we don't think that's going to end well for one or the <laughs> other or both um but what i'm getting at is the mental stimulation that these mm-hmm. animals in the backyard are providing her she'll lock up on point for like 20 minutes i'm like girl you need to take a dump we got to go to work like let's go <laughs> get to it and so there's this like she runs to this pine tree she runs over to this this um bush and she knows there's going to be birds that come to the feeder there and boom she's on point like she's going this is my space you know like there's a mental there's something happening there that i can see in her she's waiting at the door she wants to go out and see who's on her turf now you know and i don't know if that's i assume that's all good stuff right yeah i mean i, I would have to think that's good i mean every time we have squirrels in the backyard they uh, they're the first things that get chased out <laughs> yeah. um and uh, yeah, I had to train him to make sure that uh, he was at least gentle with the neighbor's cat too. But <laughs> um, but to kind of go off that mental stimulation, you know, we just came back from Pheasant Fest, and I had uh, uh, my three-year-old poodle pointer uh, at our booth for three straight days, um, and he was on um, uh, place, you know, most of that time. But he hardly didn't sleep all day because it was so much mental stimulation with all the dogs walking around, all the kids coming up, giving him love and hugs and kisses and stuff. Yep. Uh, that by the end of the day, he was just exhausted. He, like he couldn't keep his eyes open and he hadn't hadn't run, hadn't done much of anything all day. Um, and so the mental stimulation part of it could be very um, physically exhausting for dogs, too. So, um, you know, people don't really... Um, uh, give credit to the amount of mental stimulation. That's why a lot of these dogs, you know, they, they, you hear a lot of times they need a job, um, because they need to be mentally stimulated. They need to be challenged. Um, and that goes just as far as the physical aspect of it. Yeah. I, I my wife came down to pheasant fest and Daisy was in the bird dog parade. And then she was, you know, with me for most of the day and the mental stimulus, I told her, I'm like, when, when we're done here, she is going to be so exhausted that she's going to pass out for the next two days. Yeah. And my wife's like, oh, whatever. And then she took Daisy home because I had to go to the, the live show that night. And I didn't want to keep her downtown. And she sent me a picture like two minutes after the vehicle. They got in the vehicle, just passed out. And she was out the whole rest of the day too. I mean, there's, there's something about mental stimulation. And that also includes when you're training, working with the dog, they're thinking, they're they're trying to uh-huh. understand stuff. Like if you go on a good, hard training day with your dog, it's not necessarily that they ran 50 miles or, you know, physically were exhausted, but I've seen mine where she is just so spent and it was all a mental, mental day for her mentally exhausted. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think that you know, one of the challenges some people get when they get, um, um, these hunting breeds, um, is whenever they have to do obedience training and stuff with them, they don't account for some of these. And then they take their dog to, oh, I know this obedience trainer. Let me take my dog there. Well, the 
the obedience training is good, but you also have to uh, account for that prey drive and, and those exercise demands into that training. Um, you know, a dog might be able to set in place perfectly still inside, uh, but when you take them outside and there's squirrels running around everywhere else and they're not behaving on the leash, and you're like, well, that obedience training was worthless. Um, you know, it's it could be kind of discouraging to those dog owners whenever they've paid hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars for um, obedience training to a trainer that doesn't typically hunt with hunting dogs and then they get this dog back and it's just like running unruly trying to take them for a walk around the park <laughs> right right that drive is different for each different breed um who okay so you're based in the southeast yet mm -hmm. obviously anything that goes online people can partake in it webinars things like that are i know you have people in your organization around the country where where are they at um, are these events going to be nationwide? What's the big picture plan here? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, we, we launched January 9th. So at this point, we're not even two months old. Um, and so it's our events right now are kind of focused in this kind of mid-Atlantic region. Uh, but we're going to be expanding uh, events. Uh, we do have um, Dr. Jay Brecky in Colorado is on our board of directors. Um, so hopefully we can have some events out there. Uh, we also have board of directors in Virginia. And then the, most of them are in North Carolina. Um, but we are currently have an ambassador program where we want to get an ambassador for every state. Um, and that's going to be someone that has eyes and ears on the ground um, to help us uh, help promote our mission and help identify uh, motivated people that want to be make a difference for, for bird dogs um, and they can go online and apply for the ambassador program and and the ambassadors are going to work directly with our board of directors uh, so that we have a pulse on you know what um, every state has as far as you know uh, needs for bird dogs whether it's uh, making public lands safer uh, creating uh, more opportunities for public lands so people can take their dogs out uh, doing clinics uh, doing any type of uh, social events outreach adventure hikes anything like that just to um, provide people with opportunities to be active engaged with their dogs particularly during the off season if even for hunting dogs you, know, you have this long off season which is unfortunately longer than hunting season. Mm -hmm. uh, so we need to keep these dogs uh, physically uh, in shape and, um, and keep a healthy weight uh, on them, you know, year round. Um, and so providing events uh, around, around the country is our, our long-term goal um, with the ambassadors. They're going to help us identify people to start chapters uh, in each state. Uh, and actually tomorrow night, we have our first chapter meeting with uh, all the members from North Carolina, uh, and then in a few weeks, we're also going to have a chapter meeting for all the members in Virginia to get those chapters uh, established. And then we have uh, um, members in, in many other states that we're looking at our membership base. Um, and if people want to get involved, we really need uh, memberships uh, so we can identify where we need to focus our attention as far as getting chapters um, off the ground. And those chapters are going to be critical in helping organize some of these events, whether it's shed hunts or or improving public lands or building. One thing we're doing with uh, the state of North Carolina is building uh, permanent duck blinds on public lands uh, so people can take their dogs waterfowl hunting. Um, and so these ambassadors would help uh, work with state agencies to figure out what kind of volunteer opportunities are available uh, and what we can and can't do uh, on public lands. Because uh, one of the big things of people to have dogs and utilize public lands um, is what does what are the specific regulations for each uh, public land. A lot of times that can vary from region to region within the state and also from uh, specific 
um, WMAs and, and game lands is what we have over here. Um, so we're actually working with the state of North Carolina to uh, create a um, information booklet uh, that identifies all the public lands you can go train and exercise your dog, run them off leash, uh, and the specific regulations associated with those. So it's an easy um, way to find information to to uh, be able to take your dog out because one of the issues that one of the big issues that we wanted to address with the bird dog society is is address the fragmentation um, that uh, is within the community as far as you know you have to go to this website to find an organization to be involved you go to this website to find public land to take your dog you have to go to the, a different website to find regulations for that public land uh, you know and vets and then you know if you take your dog uh, to do water activities you know harmful algal blooms are an issue that you should really look into and stuff like that and so we just want to try to bring everything uh, into one source which will be our website uh, our website is getting uh, uh, monthly updates and so what is uh, right that now, by the way a, can you big, can you share that with us uh yeah our website is birddogsociety.org and um we're going to be adding stuff onto that on a monthly basis. So if you go on there and uh, there's aspects on there that uh, we have highlighted, but we don't have the material in there yet, um, those will be coming soon. Um, right now we have lists of bird growers and states and uh, emergency vets. So if you're traveling, you can click on the state you're going to and get a list of emergency vets. Um, we're working on getting auto public lands up there. Um, we have links to all the state uh, harmful algal bloom advisories. Uh, and stuff like that. So with the with the hover map we have on there, uh, it'll be just a quick way, especially if you're traveling, that you can click on whatever state you're in and you get all these resources kind of right there at your fingertip without having to go search for them. Awesome. Well, I mean, it sounds like you've got a lot of, this is a great resource for obviously bird dog owners that are hunters, but I, I sometimes, you know, I encounter people that they want to get into hunting or they want to, they get a dog and they have all these questions, you know, and I try my best to help people as much as I can, but I think I fall short a lot of times because I just don't have the time to invest into each person individually to answer all their questions and go through all these experiences. I'm always looking for resources to point people so that they can learn more. And I feel like what you're providing is going to be perfect for me, hopefully for other hunters that have friends that might be, you know, first time dog owner or whatever, you know, all these questions that come up here, go to the, go to the bird dog society. And there's going to be a lot of information that you're going to be able to get from this. And Hey, you might even, you might even be able to join an event, things like that. I mean, am, am I, do I feel like I'm right in saying that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's one reason why we wanted to go to Pheasant Fest is we wanted to build that base in uh, Minnesota and, and Wisconsin um, so we can get chapters and events on, uh, on the ground there because um, we're really looking at member numbers to figure out where uh, we want to uh, get these chapters uh, online because we need a kind of a critical base uh, in order to start a chapter and start putting events down. Um, if we don't have any members in New Mexico, it doesn't make sense for us to do something in New Mexico. Uh, but now if you are out there in New Mexico listening, uh, you know, we would love to get membership so we can uh, get involvement because we do want to be a national organization that uh, people, you know, when they get a bird dog, um, you know, breeders are like, hey, you need to go to this website and, and check it out. There's a lot of resources to help get you started and help get you plugged into different communities. Because yeah. um, having a bird dog is really being part of a community. Um, and part of being in that is helping uh, with problems, whether it's training, uh, discipline, uh, even just doing like a buddy uh, boarding situation. You know, a lot of times you travel and you can't take your dog, you yeah. know. 
I'll watch your dog while you're on vacation. You watch my dog while I'm on vacation. And those things, just simple little things like that can make uh, bird dog ownership so much easier. Um, so with these chapters, it'll be getting people plugged into a community. Very cool. And I assume the response was positive up here at Pheasant Fest when you guys had your booth? Yeah, we got a lot of people um, that came through. Uh, a lot of a lot of great response. Um, and uh, uh, you know, so now we we're, we're seeing kind of the the fruits of that labor uh, coming in. Uh, we get new members every single day, uh, and our growth curve is actually very encouraging. Um, and so, if if we compare our growth curve to to other organizations, it's uh, it's basically in line with what a lot of other recent organizations like BHA and and some of the growth that NABDA is seeing. Um, so that's very encouraging. Um, because people, you know, realize that there's a need. And if you are board of directors, um, the kind of the common theme with our board of directors um, is, you know, I want to be a part of this because I wish this organization was around two years ago or three years ago or, <laughs> yeah. you know, whenever they got their dog. Um, and because they feel there there is a need uh, for an organization to kind of uh, bring everything together, remove some of that fragmentation and be a welcoming, inclusive organization for all bird dog owners. Love it. Jim, I appreciate you sharing all this with us today. Uh, congratulations on the business. Congratulations to you and your wife on your child and the venture that you guys have started. I obviously wish you nothing but the very best. We will um, encourage people to go to the Bird Dog Society, check it out, and share it with your friends. Share it with those that have puppies coming. We've got puppy season here. And there's a lot to learn. I, I already know a handful of people that are getting their first dog, their first bird dog. And I'm definitely going to share this with them because they've got a lot to learn. And they're, we're always learning together. Like you said, it's a community. So we appreciate it. Any final uh, words of wisdom to share before we head out? Well, just to kind of build on what you were just saying, you know, one of the cool things about the Pheasant Fest was seeing some of our existing members come up to our booth and getting to meet them and talk to them. And some of them had dogs and some of them were about to get dogs and just seeing the excitement in their face and you know when they're talking about the their puppy that they're about to pick up uh, was just you know kind of really fueled the fire for why we're trying to do this um and then we're you know we really want to um you know reach out and, and be a resource for people that are struggling um you know i i, I feel i have a personal um kind of touch or i, I guess went uh, kind of have a personal uh, investment in, in making all bird dogs happy just because of what they've provided for us. But, um, but yeah, I mean, people can go check us out at birddogsociety.org. Um, they can also email us for more information at uh, info at birddogsociety.org. Uh, and we'd be happy to get them connected uh, and get them involved if they want to be uh, further involved with the organization. Very cool. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate all that you're doing. Best of luck to you on this new journey. Thank you. Thank you, Travis. Thanks for having us and uh, helping us uh, spread the word. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, before we end this episode, I just want to remind people, if you have not been able to watch our TV show because you cut the cord or you don't have the outdoor channel on your package, just a reminder that our episodes are now almost the entire season. Every week, a new episode uh, gets uploaded to our YouTube channel in its entirety, so you can watch the episodes I think there's a couple left, but the whole season uh, will be up there soon. You can watch them as many times as you want. You can even comment on it and tell us what you like or didn't like. Um, and then I do like to continue to receive the suggestions for episodes. I've got quite a few that have come in over the last few weeks since I haven't been able to talk, <laughs> which is fine. I've got quite a few shows coming up that I'm excited 
to share with everybody. And I do want to continue to include your questions. So keep sending them my way. Find us at theflush.tv, the website. Otherwise, on social media, just search The Flush TV. You'll find us. Send a message somehow, some way. It usually gets to me, and I'll respond. And I might be a question that I'll answer here on the show, because if you have it, odds are good somebody else has it as well. And uh, we'll keep on rolling. Here's to uh, keeping our voices for the rest of the season, Brandon. (laughs) Good luck. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Flush Podcast.